What is the way in which a child should go? A more literal rendering of the Hebrew at once answers this question. Such translation would be, train up a child according to his way. In every child, there are special and peculiar powers. The true business of training a child, therefore, is that of discovering what those powers are and developing them. It is a disaster to prepare a program for a child without consulting the particular and peculiar life of that child, and then to endeavor to compel the child to conform to that ideal, to live by that program. In all training of children, the first business of those responsible must be that of considering the children themselves. Herein is revealed the need for individual work. No two children are alike. They cannot be trained in groups, in standards, in grades, in classes. They may thus be dealt with for the impartation of general information, but when the real work of training them according to their ways is undertaken, they must be taken one by one. Our methods of training children have hardly begun to reach the divine ideal. In other words, training up a child according to their ways is a matter of seeing each person, each child's uniqueness in the way that God has made them. What gifts, what talents, what strengths of personality should be nurtured and encouraged and developed and brought out in a child. When a child experiences that kind of love, the love that God has for them, they grow up without that need to rebel. And the chances are that they will, in fact, adopt those moral standards and that faith that we have so desired to share with them. Now, to be sure, it's never guaranteed. I mean, this passage makes it sound so cut and dry. But we know that there are many influences in the world that can tend to draw our children away, either in youth or in young adulthood especially. But the message here, I think, is that the greatest chance for a child to... to live the way God wants them to live and for them to be people who honor and follow God uh, is to see them as God sees them and help them to be the kind of people that God wants them to be. And this is consistent with what Paul says in more than one of his epistles where in what's called the household codes he talks about Children, obey your parents. But then immediately turns around and says, parents, do not frustrate your children. So that's the Old Testament. And hopefully that is of help to some of us. I'd, one more comment about that as a grandparent. It struck me as I was reflecting on this that that is a particular role for grandparents in a child's life. 
because we're not hassled by so much of the discipline that the parents have to be concerned with. We are free to look at the children for who God has made them to be and to encourage them in that path. So let's go on to the gospel. The misconception here, I have to say, is of recent origin. And I think, I'm suspicious, it has been rather deliberate. It is the story of the Syrophoenician woman. And according to this way of interpreting this passage, Jesus is culture-bound and time-bound to his time and milieu in which he lived. And so when he refers to the woman indirectly as being a dog, he means it. According to this understanding, or this way of looking at the passage, when she shows such faith and shows such tenacity not to take no for an answer, it somehow shocks Jesus, and he has a moment of personal conversion where he realizes that God's love is not just for the Jews, nor has he come just for the Jews, but God loves everybody, and he has come to share that love with the world. It all sounds very um, uh, pious at one level, but it also conveniently allows that notion to be expressed that if Jesus himself was bound by culture and by time and place, then and he can have such a change of heart and understanding, so can we. That God can continue to give us new revelations that may be contradictory to all the understanding that has come before. There are a couple of problems with this understanding or this way of looking at this passage. Not the least of which is, it flies in the face of 2,000 years of clear understanding as to what this passage says. That is to say, Jesus saw her faith. He understood what kind of faith she had. And he did deliberately test her in order to shame his compatriots, his disciples, and any other Jews that were around to the fact that this person that they would call a dog of a Gentile, in fact, is showing more faith than most of them. And in bringing out that faith puts them to shame. That has been the understanding. But even beyond that, we have, um, uh, 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 it, it ignores and even flies in the face of a clear chronology in the scriptures themselves. Because in Matthew's gospel, there is the story of the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus 
and asks for Jesus to heal his servant. That story is seven chapters before this story of the Syrophoenician woman and that encounter. The Roman centurion was clearly a Gentile. And yet Jesus shows no compunction to help out, even volunteering to come to his house, which is forbidden for Jews to do, to go into a Gentile house. They would become unclean, they would have to purify themselves, and so on and so forth. And yet, here Jesus is doing this, and yet we try to say that somehow, seven chapters later, Jesus doesn't remember how kind and generous he was to a Gentile. Now, to be sure, Jesus did say, I will send you the comforter, the guide, the advocate, to lead you into all truth. That's in John's Gospel. And it is true that God, through his Holy Spirit, is always trying to lead us to deeper understandings of the Scripture. But the fact of the matter is, such new understandings have to be consistent with the scriptures that God has given us. We see this in the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem in the 15th chapter of Acts of the Apostles, where James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, after hearing the testimony of uh, Peter and others about the movement of God's Spirit among the Gentiles, is able to quote numerous passages from the scriptures, that part that we know as the Old Testament, about the opening of the kingdom to the Gentiles. So clearly, this new thing was entirely consistent with what God had been planning all along. And that's the kind of criteria that we need to use when we um, uh, live our life in, in Christ and try to be faithful and true to, um, uh, to what he has revealed. So if you hear that new and novel exegesis, I just want you to be prepared. Now, I said I'd finish the sermon with a reflection on this gospel, and specifically on this part of the gospel about the Syrophoenician woman. And the reflection is not my own. Again, it comes from Pastor Morgan and the book here. It's interesting what he zeroed in on in this case, because he zeroed in on the first verse of the gospel lesson for today, verse 24. Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there. Yet, he could not escape notice. Now, as he quotes it from the King James, it says, but he could not be hid. And listen to what he says about this. A mother's who heart, mother whose heart was wrung with anguish by reason of the suffering of her child sought the aid of Jesus, and from such a, 
an appeal. He could not be hid. May we not at once say that here, incidentally, we have an illustration of the very reason of the Incarnation and all that it accomplished. From human suffering, God cannot withdraw himself. He cannot be hidden. It appeals to him irresistibly because of the grace of his nature. When there is no eye to pity, his eye always pities. When there is no arm to save, his arm brings salvation. Herein and herein alone is our hope that at last sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And moreover, in the fact that it is God who is thus compelled by his nature to come to the relief of the sorrowing. This is our guarantee that there will be no slight healing of our wounds. He does not deal with symptoms merely, but with the dire root of the disease. As he comes forth from his hiding place, compelled by human agony, he comes to make no terms with that which has caused the pain, but he comes to end the pain by removing the cause. In other words, the God of all goodness and love comes to us as one of us in Jesus Christ. And in the flesh, he dies for all of us that we might be freed and empowered to live a life to the honor and glory of God. While we are yet in this world, we are freed and empowered to share the blessings of this world as foretastes of the blessings of the kingdom of God itself, looking at all people as those who are made in the image of God, and all together then, looking in anticipation and with joy and with courage at those blessings that have been promised us in the world to come when we see Christ and God the Father face to face. Thanks be to God for such a great salvation.